Welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Epic Knight. And I'm Andrew And start the show, we're talking about social housing, and we are joined by property investor Ilsa Wolf from Opus Accelerate, friend of the show. Ilsa, welcome along. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, here's the big thing. Of course, we've got the interest deductibility rules coming in, and oh, they've actually started as of October last year. Just taken another hit as of April this year, but... One big way to work around these rules and not have to pay the extra tax is to rent out to social housing providers or community housing providers. So we've had a lot of questions from you guys at home and we're going to talk about the behind the scenes, the risks and also what that is actually like. Now, Elsa, just walk us through which sort of providers can you get this tax incentive or tax benefit from? Really important first question to ask. There are three different groups that can be covered, but the most important thing to note here is that they must be a registered CHP, which is a community housing provider. So they need to be registered through the government's database and be accredited for funding under this. So this is three categories. First one being emergency, extremely short-term housing, then transition into what is called transitional housing. So that can be roughly two to three month CHP providers. And then long-term social housing, which is typically between a one and a 10-year contract, which is more seen like a typical tenancy agreement term. And I know that just to have a bit of fun with this, you've put together a little <laughs> quiz for Andrew and I. Let's see whether right. he really is the prince of property. <laughs> and I, if I'm, I'm the expert the... economist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, by the way. Well, who's asking the questions? You're Yo. going to ask us. Oh, great. Okay. First Do we have question, to buzz? Do we have to buzz? Yeah, what's your buzz going to be? Buzz. Mine's going to be... Ah! Okay, all right, fine. Sorry for everybody at home. <laughs> okay, great. I have three different scenarios here, and I would like you to tell me if this situation qualifies for tax deductibility under the social housing provisions with these new government incentives. Okay, so number one scenario. Ed wants to have tax deductibility and do a great thing for a social housing provider. He sets up a new company called Ed's Social Housing Company. Does this qualify? Ah! <laughs> no, it doesn't because it's not a registered community housing provider. You were listening. <laughs> What's the next one? Great. Okay. As you know, we love a three-bedroom house and convert it to a five-bedroom rental. So let's say you create a five-bedroom rental. Three of those rooms are tenanted by social housing. Buzz, no. Do you qualify? <laughs> Do you not? Why not? Because only three of them were rented. Correct. All the entire property must be occupied by the social housing <laughs> occupant. <laughs> Look at that disappointment on your face. I'm just sad for the poor investor who's rented three out and, and no, uh, doesn't get... So, you're sad about losing. What's the next okay, one? Okay, what's the next one? What's Don't the look tiebreaker? Your... I'm not looking at my notes. Okay. You've already looked at yours. I have not. Come you on. Have so. You just laughed. <laughs> also, you're meant to be the moderator here. You're not doing a good job. Come on, what's the next question? <laughs> Buzz, yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. It is deductible <laughs> because it's the third one and we've had no yeses. Go on, Elsa. What's the next one? All right. So the third and final scenario, your tenant is a registered social housing provider. They take your property for a three-year term, but only physically occupy it for two of those years. They don't have anyone that would suit your property. So they pop it up on Trade Me and fill it for one year on the open market. Buzz, Does it qualify yes. for tax deductibility? Uh, no, not for the last bit. <laughs> and the reason is it's got to be at a below market rent. Correction. <laughs> Did you say you correction? I didn't get it right. 
Correction, yes. So the property must be tenanted by that social housing tenant for the full signed up term. So if they only fulfil two of those three years, so you none lose of it. all of the benefit. All of the none benefit. Of oh, that's made. How do you know that? How are they going to know? How's the IRD going to know apart what? from the fact that they listen to, to this podcast? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Put that on my record, Ed. This is, this is ratified by an accountant. Really? Mm-hmm. But the thing is that you might not know. I mean, you've already had those two years. You've already filed your tax return for those first two years. Uh, Ed, you lost and you're you're taking this poorly. You got that wrong as well. Yeah, I know. We we are equal. We're equal losers. Oh, disappointing. And also, I know you recently spoke at the Waikato Property Investors Association talking about how you support social housing. Now, I know that a lot of investors are out there asking about the reality of actually renting your properties out as social housing. Tell me, who are the actual occupants that are in some of your properties or the investors you work with properties who do come from social housing? What sort of people are they? Yeah, great question. So the event at Waikato was really interesting. We had three different providers, a couple of them we have worked with. So every regional CHP or social housing provider, they they vary from region to region. So what we'll do is we'll link in the show notes to the CHP register. So you can go check out by city and region. It varies even within the region and the city, actually. So that's why you want to have a look. So we support so far within my own properties and within clients, we have a mix of transitional and long-term tenants. So for transitional, Transitional, for example, Salvation Army, they have the most diverse need I have seen. We know that in Hamilton alone, which I learned last week, there are 1,700 families sitting in emergency housing looking for their step up into transitional and long term. So within my portfolio, I have units and these can be you know, a single mum with a child or a single person. And then the larger homes that we create typically through cash flow hacking, these are large families with very unique needs. So for example, a family with an auntie or an elderly relative who wants the cabin for their own bit of space, or where there are several different brackets of age groups of children, say for example, a couple of elder teens and then a couple of younger kids, having those different areas within the rental and having the backyards are really attractive to those sorts of tenants. Too. So we actually do cater to different types of tenants and different dynamics. Okay. And what's it like actually renting to a social housing provider or a chip compared to just renting out to a long-term tenant? Yeah, it's a really important experience to share and I think debunk some of the broad brush stigma that we see out in media or just you know chat within investor chat groups or out there with those who are interested but don't have perhaps complete information. So that's what some of the facts we want to share today. There is sort of a widely assumed risk and without being, I think there's a lot of generalisation around that social housing tenants are much higher risk. We'll talk about some of those risks shortly, but given there are 63 registered chips, the need for the occupants or the tenants within those all have varying needs. So it is true along that continuum, there might be some higher risk entities that are sort of rehab related, you know, it could be drugs and alcohol related entities. And then down the other end of the continuum, there are people who, for some reason, don't meet typical credit criteria on a public tenancy, you know, when they're competing with the general public, for one reason or another, don't quite fit in and don't get the chance, or they may need some other social support wraparound services, as they call them, for example, around mental health. And in this pandemic world, there is an 
massively increasing need for CHPs. So what I think is really important here is to understand that there is a complete range within those 63 and counting. And the most important thing you can do, I would say my advice would be work out your values and your reason for wanting to support and then look at the region and look at making sure the values that you have are aligned with the housing provider to make sure you set yourself up for success and that you know the type of tenant you're looking to house. No, no, no. We don't have values. We're property investors. <laughs> the only value we care about, of course, is the value of the house. A great dollar. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, just to be clear for everybody at home, we're joking, obviously. Now, also, I really want to dig into the practical side of it. Now, we were having a great conversation before we hit the record button about whether you still need a property manager if you are going to rent out to social housing. I think this is interesting because the way that some community housing providers market it themselves is they say, well, you don't have to pay us to do the property management. There's free property management if you come through us. Correct. That is so true. At Opus Accelerate, and I would always personally recommend through my experience and just understanding that there are these additional complexities. And as the landlord, you are really one extra step removed from the physical occupants or the tenants who will be in the house. So regardless of which social housing provider you go with and how they sell themselves to you, I would always recommend take on your own professional property manager. You know, it's what we already advise. You know, Andrew talked about that with his recent podcast. You always go. You learn the hard way that hands down, there's so many regulatory aspects. You will never be completely on top of it unless it's really what you, you know, you want to specialize in. So always go with a professional manager. I do know of one instance, for example, where a landlord unknowingly fell behind one of the Healthy Homes upgrade dates. I think it was the heat pump date deadline. And the social housing provider showed no qualms about taking them to the tenancy tribunal oh. and claiming back rent. Wow. So, exactly. So it's one thing to potentially have eight or 9% better cash flow, but it's an open-ended amount of risk that you can open yourselves up to if you do not look at dotting the I's and crossing the T's on a tenancy agreement. Having someone on your side of the equation is always better for your interests. But wait a second, if the property manager doesn't have to find a tenant and there are some things that a property manager won't have to do if you're renting out to social housing, are you still going to pay them the full fee of 8 to 9% or do you pay it anyway because there's more complexity if you're going to be renting out to a social housing provider? Great question. I have a client who has actually double duplex in New Plymouth that we checked in on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Salvation Army is picking up the keys for those four rentals in a couple of weeks' time. That client, incredibly astute investor, she has already negotiated down a rate because of the fact Salvation Army runs their own weekly checks on their tenants. She argued that, hey, look, they are doing part of the job. So definitely, why not? You don't ask, you don't get. And on top of that, do you get inspection reports? So I know for a fact that when the property manager goes in, every three months, here I go, I get a report, I get to check out the dishwashers, make sure that the place hasn't burned down. Do you get sent that if you rent out to the Sally Army? You do get those documentations. I'm not quite sure with Salvation Army, we're not yet to see those one week inspections start just yet. My guess is they're probably just checking in on the tenant more than the property every week, right? Yeah, this is true. They have incredibly strict house rules, you know, things like no alcohol on site, whether it's the tenant or any guest, they, and they check for anything that doesn't fit what should or shouldn't be on site. So I think it's more for managing the tenant, but that's another reason to go with your own professional manager to make sure you're at least adhering to what you need for your own insurance purposes, which is a whole next matter we should definitely talk about. 
So I remember actually you telling me also that you'd had a property and there was about 20K worth of damage that you had to recoup from the community housing provider to cover off damage to one of your properties. So tell us about that and tell us about the risks associated with renting to a community housing provider. Yes, so... I did post a few videos on my story a while back, so those who may have seen. It's a really interesting story, one where I was waiting for my COVID booster and I get a call from my property manager and she says, Ilsa, I've just sent you a video on WhatsApp. I need you to sit down, watch it, and then call me back. (laughs) (laughs) So this, you know, what I think is a really important message from my perspective is that Between my portfolio and our Opus Accelerate clients, we have housed over 50 families through social housing. We did the tally up. It's awesome. Out of all of those experiences, this is the one less than perfect experience, or this is the one negative experience that I can illustrate to demonstrate the risks that I have now seen in practice. So basically what these tenants had done, there was a physical altercation between the two people who lived in this property. What over? I don't know the details. And from a privacy law perspective, I'm not allowed to know anything, even though it's on my property. So that was a learning for me. What happened was something happened between them. My property manager couldn't safely get on site. The police had to come to physically remove those people so that my manager could safely go inside and have a look and inspect. Through the video call, I evaluated all of the damage which in summary was curtain rails ripped off walls, curtains burnt. Burnt? Burnt. One of the ceilings and one of the rooms had been hacked with, I don't know, some kind of tool. So there were gashes in the ceiling. The ceramic I can't even change my light bulb, let alone gash the ceiling. Smashed windows, boarded up. A door had been so violently flung that it bent and the knob still went right through the wall. And then there was a decent amount of blood on the floor and around the vanity. So... The garage door had also been completely ripped off. I don't even know how that's possible. Basically, the summary is it was around $20,000 of damage. So what I know that most investors are worried about is cash flow risk with social housing. And that is that, okay, what if my property is either vacant or I don't get paid? One of the most important aspects of your tenancy agreement will be to make sure the terms of the contract are such that you have rent in perpetuity. So I already knew at that point that even though it would be vacant for the foreseeable future, the rent would keep coming. So that cash flow risk was already neutralised. Who pays for the damage? So this is another thing. It all comes back to having the right tenancy agreement in place under the RTA. Actually, what I think was the biggest risk, and that's the one I hadn't really thought about, was that while this took three months for the damages to be repaired, and not without my property managers constantly checking in and nudging them along, giving notices for three months, my largest risk that I saw is because I'm an active investor, if I had needed to restructure or refinance involving that particular property, I would have had massively compromised security. So, you know, if Peter Norris had said to me, go get a registered valuation on the site, I would guess that it would look forty to $50,000 worse than what I needed it on paper to deliver for me to extract equity from. So then your challenge is that the bank says, hey, we're not going to lend against that until the, the repairs have been done. Yeah, totally. And so then what is really important to note through in practice is with your specific housing provider, what are their policies around remediating any issues like that? We had already done our due diligence. We knew it was black and white in our tenancy agreement that they would return the property to original condition. So that is really important to note. One, but in the details I then found out was I can't just go and deploy my awesome power team and make sure all the door handles are consistent, that they're the right shape and the same shape as what's still there. It was actually that they 
only work with their pre-approved suppliers and they were massively booked up. So what I could have completed through our team in four weeks actually took 12 weeks. Hey, the cash flow came in, but you know, if I had needed to refinance, that could have been a major issue for me. So that was one lesson. So I, what I would say is it's another reason why a professional manager will help you get the right clauses in your contract yep. to make sure that your security is fast-tracked as much as possible back to normal, and then your cash flow is constant. And also, I know that there's a big issue around insurance as well that people talk about. That's right. So I know the biggest question or uncertainty is insurance cover. So it is extremely difficult to get cover when you disclose to your broker or provider, insurance provider, that you have a CHP as a tenant. Do not go in blind and assume that your normal cover for your investment property covers social housing. It does not. Unless you have explicitly provided all of the documentation, who that tenant is, how they go about their credit checks and everything that you need to disclose under the material interest clause, your insurance is very likely to be void in the instance that you have an issue like I did. So fortunately, we have had an incredibly pioneering manager once again, and we have full comprehensive cover for all of our clients. It is something that I only discovered myself eight months ago, I was not covered for. So before you do make any decision, you need to cover the insurance upfront. So it sounds like there's some pros, some cons, and just some things to consider before you go entering into a chip provider lease agreement, but that they can be good for the right type of investors. What do you call it? Chip? It's got no eye no, in it. That's what they call themselves. Is that what they oh, yeah. Call oh, yourself the economist that knows everything. <laughs> so Tony Alexander would have known. Let's call him now and find <laughs> out. Right. So three main things. Make sure that you're getting a professional property manager if you are going to go out and do the social housing route. Negotiate those clauses. We've given you some ideas there specifically around remediation and also cash flow and then finally make sure you're thinking about your insurance really really important tell you what let's wrap it up there but please don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the property academy podcast really does help us get the message out to more people and hey if you want to work with ilsa at opus accelerate i tell you what here's what you do tap or swipe over the cover up we'll put a link in there we can find all about the opus accelerate program listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ian McKnight. And I'm Adrian Nicholl. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.